Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're going to be talking about emotions in simulation-based education, friends or foes of learning, question mark. And this is the latest in our Advances series, and this is a paper just published in Advances in Simulation. So by way of introduction, we know that simulation-based learning involves thinking, but also feeling. And we know that emotions are pervasive and powerful, to use words from the paper we're discussing today. And we also know that these emotions impact on performance and learning in both healthcare simulation and, of course, in the real world. So today we're looking at the research on emotions, cognitive processes and learning, and we're doing that with the authors of a narrative overview on this topic. Now, the first of these guests is Vicky LeBlanc, who is Chair and Full Professor in the Department of Innovation in Medical Education at the University of Ottawa, and she's been studying the effects of stress and emotions on learning and performance for close to 20 years. And we last spoke to Vicky uh, on Simulcast last year when she was a keynote speaker at CSAM, the European Sim Conference. Uh, how are you, Vicky? I'm good, and I'm excited to talk about my favourite topic today. Absolutely. I feel like this is quite the culmination or capstone of a whole bunch of work you've done. Uh, so I'm going to have trouble, I think, trying to keep this down to a, a reasonable amount of talking. Uh, and speaking of reasonable amounts of talking and the challenges of that, Glenn Posner, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, at the Ottawa Hospital and the University of Ottawa, as well as the Medical Director of the University of Ottawa Skills and Simulation Centre. And I was last working with Glenn closely on his excellent uh, Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada Simulation Summit, uh, where I got to give a talk about translational simulation. How are you, Glenn? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. Excellent. All right, well, let's get into it. And uh, as I was just saying to Glenn and Vicky, I'm excited, but uh, now I almost feel like that's a tricky thing to say because it has more meaning than I'd ever really appreciated. But the paper starts with a with a great discussion about the ways that we think about emotions in SIM. And I could recognize a lot of my own thinking here, that this uh, emotional uh, activation is a good thing for buy-in and engagement. And of course, that must lead to better learning. Uh, that a lot of us think about having a sweet spot for stress versus anxiety. And we also, some of us, like the idea of doing deliberate stress exposure sims that might inoculate our learners. Uh, and I just love this start to the paper, Vicky. It seems like it's the right area um, to sort of begin because a lot of us, I think, do have strong feelings about this, but mine certainly haven't been uh, based on too much literature. Uh, why did you start it this way? Um, I think we started it this way because it reflected a lot of the conversations we've been having over the years. Um, so Glenn and I often teach a, a sim educator training course. Um, and then there's a lot of situations where we talk about that, where people will talk about emotions. And I'd often be sitting kind of on my hands wanting to say a lot. And, um, and you know, I would often go on a little bit of rants with Glenn. We've, we've worked closely over the years. And, and so we thought, well, we need to write a paper on this in a way that is going to be um, kind of comprehensible, right? Not too steeped in the theory, not too steeped in the literature, and how do we frame it? And so we just thought, okay, well, let's let's have a conversation about what is it that people think emotions do in learning? And that was a bit of our brainstorming. And we thought, well, you know what, why not just start with that? Because those are the ways that people think about emotions in the field. Yeah, it makes a, a huge amount of sense. Um, Glenn, did you want to add to that? You are the... Uh... 
the king of the rants. I've seen your work <laughs> online and elsewhere. Uh, but yeah, sometimes it can be frustrating. Yeah, I think that the introductory paragraph of the paper really summarizes it well. I This is a paper written by Vicky and I because Vicky uh, is the... Um, the, the emotions researcher, and this is her wheelhouse. And I'm just a guy trying to make his way in the world as a simulation educator. And I couldn't, you know, in the, in the beginning of my career, I couldn't give a talk without having that standard slide of um, Russell's circumplex model of emotion. And I love the circumplex model of emotion. I, you know, I'd, I, would, I would have a throw pillow with the circumplex motion, uh, um, model of emotion uh, on it. Um, so that was, that's been my, you know, in the early days of simulation, that was, uh, my calling card, which was, you know, better to be engaged in a simulation than, than have bums in a seat and raw, 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 um, you know, activation and get them excited and, and all the, everything about encoding of learning during a stressful situation. And then I meet Vicky and we've been working together now for six years and, I'm, I'm like doing my usual, this is why simulation is so amazing. And then I see Vicky sitting on her hands and biting her tongue. And, and I'm like, do you have something you want to say? Uh, <laughs> and then I learn, <laughs> I learn, you know, the, the evidence behind it. And, um, in reflecting on my own practice, you know, we'll talk about, um, places I've gone awry over the years. And, and this, we thought that this paper would be a good way to, uh, balance the, raw, raw, raw excitement of uh, mm-hmm. activation versus the research that uh, Vicky has done over the years. Mm. Well, if nothing else, Glenn, that's a tribute to your ability to recognize uh, Vicky's physical manifestations of her emotions uh, <laughs> listening to you talk. <laughs> well, I've, I'm, I was raised in a French culture, so I'm not very, I don't have a very good poker face in terms of expressing my emotions. So I don't think reading my body language was that difficult. <laughs> All right. Well, this sounds like a perfect way to get right into it. <clears throat> and as you've already flagged there, Vicky, it's a really big, deep dive into this article. And I would just suggest for people reading, it is worth spending the time to have that in-depth look. So I'm going to ask you a very big challenge here to try and give us a synopsis of that research, uh, taking us back to a few of these fundamentals about emotions, about attention, memory, motivation, uh, and drawing, as you do in the paper, from the basic uh, neuroscience to the specific other disciplines to then thinking about ours specifically. So start where you like with that. <laughs> no pressure. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think what we wanted to do with this paper is um, – I think most of us, as as we grow up, we often sort of, in our professional settings, have a bit of an uncomfortable relationship with emotions. Um, we we know that they're there, but there's these implicit messages that tell us that, um, you know, we, we want to subdue them and, and we want to erase them. So I think the essence of what we wanted to cover in this paper is just to introduce this idea that emotions aren't necessarily something that would that we want to contrast thinking or that we want to contrast reason to. Um, you know, for a long time, even in psychology, even in the neurosciences, if we're trying to understand how people think, how people process the information, you know, emotions is always something that was pushed aside. And that was, you know, that it's something that lives in our limbic system. It's something that lives in our primitive uh, brain. And the, the higher order thinking, the higher order reasoning is what really distinguishes us um, as developed creatures. And 
I, I think the, the key point for this is to say that you can't separate them. Like, I won't go into the neuropsychology of the brain, but essentially the brain is actually constructed in a way and it works in a way that it actually gives priority to emotional information. Because emotional information is information that is critical for us to be able to survive either physically or, or socially. And so what we know about the way that emotions and cognition are is that our brain is primed to pay attention to that information that has meaning to us, and that's by putting emotions to it. And it works by something that we call mood congruent processing. And so to put it as simply as I can is that whatever emotion you have is going to put a little bit of a filter or it's going to flavor the way that what you pay attention to, what you remember, how you interpret things that are in the world and how you make decisions so that the world that you live in when you're happy is essentially a different world than you live in when you're angry. I don't like, does that, does that make sense if mm. I put it that perspective? It makes a huge amount of sense. And I think contrasting that with, you know, these just basic beliefs we might have. So everyone agrees that emotion has an impact. But I guess what you're saying is it might not be as predictable as we think or just along a single dimension as we think. Yeah, it's not as predictable. I mean, it's it's more predictable than it used to be. And I think one of the things is people have started to study it maybe in the last 15 or 20 years and really trying to understand it. So we are starting to see some some patterns. Um, but obviously, as a researcher, I'm going to I'm going to argue for the fact that we need to have more research to, to, to understand it. But there's things that we do know, right? Because so if you think about an emotion, what an emotion is, is you've interpreted the world around you in terms of what it means for your goals, who's responsible, whether or not it's good or bad, whether or not you have control. And all of these different appraisals are going to create an emotional reaction. And that emotional reaction is a signal to your brain about the state that you're in, right? So happiness is telling you, you know, things are good. You're in a good state. You're happy. So you can let down your guard and you don't need to pay attention to details and you can kind of dial back on efforts, right? It's a bit about kind of recuperation type of, of situation. You're good. You can ease off. So your brain is going to is gonna function that way, right? You're not going to pay attention to details. You're not going to be, you're going to be easily distractible. Whereas if you're angry, then being angry tells you that you're in an undesirable situation and somebody else is responsible and it was unfair. And oftentimes anger is going to make you want to approach, right? You want to rectify the situation because you have control. And so you're going to interpret information differently that way. And then if I take as a third example, the one that we all think about a lot in simulation is stress. Stress and anxiety tells you there's potentially something bad that's going to happen. You don't really feel like you have control. And so, but, you know, if it's bad, it's going to be bad for a goal that you have. So you you are on high alert for things that can be threatening. And so you're going to look for that information. You're going to remember that information. And you're going to interpret ambiguity in line of, I need to protect myself and this goal that I have. So emotions actually have a very good functional role. And they they direct attention and memory and cognition appropriately. And I think what we just need to understand more is, well, okay, well, how does that actually affect in detail learning? How does it affect performance when there's a lot of stakes and people have a lot of knowledge and they have a lot of expertise to bring to it? Yeah, so that's very interesting, isn't it? So this stress leads to hypervigilance, which might have a so-called functional 
impact if it means people are paying a lot of attention to the clinical scenario and what might happen and looking for cues with their patients. But it might have a problem if what they're being hypervigilant to is the observers or the things that they perceive as their threat to, and, and in fact, distract them from learning. And I think what you're saying is that may not necessarily be predictable or easy to discern at any given moment. Well, yeah, it's not either when you're in it, because a lot of us are actually bad at recognizing when we're anxious and when we're stressed, because a lot of the messages we have from growing up is you have to kind of power through and, and to show anxiety or stress. Is, is a sign of weakness. So a lot of us have actually learned to kind of subdue or suppress it. So we're oftentimes not very good at recognizing our own stress. And we're also very good at, at covering it up and masking it. So we're not always very good at recognizing it in other individuals. Mm, okay, this is pretty confronting stuff, isn't it, Glenn? Uh, and I'm going to ask you just to reflect a little bit on our maybe training in medicine, because it seems that back to Vicky's initial point, we have prized this dispassionate clinical reasoning uh, removed from emotion. How do you think the traditions of our medical training play into this emotional milieu? I think when I reflect on scenarios that I've uh, put, I don't want to say put people through in the past, that I've exposed my learners to purposefully, um, a situation of multitasking, a situation where, you know, let's face that, that eclamptic seizure at the Sim Center before you face it in real life so that you, you can deal with it. I think a lot of what we're doing is aimed at trying to, um, take the emotional response out of it in real life so that, um, you can have a dispassionate response to the crisis in front of you and look um, a look like a well-oiled machine that that you've oh, I've, I've faced this problem countless times. Uh, this is what we do to get out of it. So that's super interesting, isn't it? And uh, so, Vicky, I think Glenn's uh, words there illustrate that when we're doing training, we're training people for what they might do. We're training people for what they might think. But maybe we're also training people for what they might feel and how to deal with that as well. And you would say that just is, it's not good or bad, it just is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've, you've, you've given a really good example of, we know that simulation teaches us, you know, what people are going to do, what they're going to experience. And inadvertently, we give them exposure to what they're going to feel. Um, but I think we can be a little bit more deliberate in how we do that. Um, because the intent is valid, right? This is one of the strengths that we can have of, of simulation. So the intent is very valid, but mere exposure is not going to be enough. Um, and, you know, and we may also be inadvertently suggesting that emotions are bad, right? We want to train people to be exposed to things so that when they face it, they're going to be, you know, dispassionate. So the implicit message we're giving with that is that, you know, you don't want to have emotions in that situation. And so what we wanted to start the conversation with this paper is to say, well, you are going to feel emotions when this happens, right? You have lives at stake that you're responsible for. As a patient, I hope you're going to have some emotions and you're not going to be a robot. But what if we tell people you're going to have those emotions? They're not right or wrong. And in some cases, they're going to help you. In some cases, they're going to harm you. But let's acknowledge that they're going to be there. Let's recognize that they're going to be there and help our learners explicitly say, okay, here's how you can be mindful to know what your emotions are and recognize them early. And here's how you can have an understanding of how they're going to influence you in that situation. And so you can put, 
you can have systems that can kind of compensate for that. And then if the emotions are too strong, here are some adaptive ways and some good ways that you can, some skills that you can put into practice so that when those emotions are too strong or they're not adapted to the situation, you can redress them and you can, you can, you can modify mm, them. Great. So before we go to a specific example to tease this out, there's one other part of the literature review that I was hoping you could make some comments about, and that was the issues related to memory and how emotions affect memory. Because I think when we're talking about learning, some of what we've been talking about so far is just how do you manage yourself and your team and other things when you're dealing with the situation. But a lot of uh, learning is about how does memory attach to emotion. Could you make some comments about that for us? Yeah, and there's this, we have this general belief that we have better memory of emotional events, right? Whether you think about it in your profession or you think about it through life, whenever there's memories that have stuck with us for, for years and for decades, they're usually situations that have had strong emotional components to it. So we have this belief that if we create emotional situations, then people are going to remember them better. Um, and then by remembering something better, then they're going to learn better and be able to apply it better. And so the challenge you have with that is that, yes, emotional memories are going to be vivid and we are going to remember more details from them. But those details are not necessarily going to be accurate, right? We have some emotional states and, and stress is one of them that has been studied quite a bit, but happiness as well, that when we have highly emotional situations, the memories that we have of that aren't necessarily going to be accurate, right? We're going to be have better memory of the things around whatever caused the emotion. So if you're in simulation and you're stressed because you have 10 of your classmates and the most intimidating staff watching you perform, your stress is caused by those individuals and it's pulling your attention away from the case and you're going to remember being in that fishbowl. Um, and so... There, there's going to be an impact in terms of what you remember. And the other thing, too, is that when we're in highly emotional situations, we when we remember them later, we kind of construct more based on what our expectations would be. Um, and so one powerful example that, that I think resonates with a lot of people is when we think back to September 11th, 2001, when the planes were flown in the Twin Towers in New York City. And if you ask anybody, you know, we're 20 years later, if you ask anybody, they'll have vivid memories of, especially in North America, they'll have vivid memories of where they were and what happened, and it, it stays with them. But there's research that also found that about over three quarters of the people thought that they actually saw on television the first plane strike in the towers. And it's because you, you, we actually didn't see it. There's no footage of it. But because we know what happened and we have a script of what happened or we have a description of it, we fill in those holes based on what we expect would have happened. And so when we've been in a strong emotional situation, we're more likely to f have those holes and, and to fill in those holes with what we would expect to have happen in that situation. So there's going to be important biases to what we remember from emotional events. But then the other thing, too, is just because we remember something doesn't mean that we've learned because learning means that I have to have a problem in front of me and I have to think back of something, a previous solution that I learned and know that that solution applies here. Right. Well, this is what we call associative learning. And we know that negative emotions are, are bad or worse for that associative learning, that if you're in a 
moderately pleasant mood, you're going to be more likely to make those associations between things. Okay. And I think that's going to be a little bit confronting for people who think this is just a single dimensional linear relationship. So, uh, so again, I will just reinforce this idea that this uh, literature review is worth the deep dive for readers. So please do that. Uh, I think the lovely thing then is, of course, you do take turn your attention to what that means for us as simulation educators. Uh, and so you list in the article some key points for us to be thinking about, about emotional um, uh, activation and what that means for learning or performance in sim. Uh, so I understand we're going to try and tease this out a little bit through a tangible example. And uh, Glenn, you're going to take us through one of yours. Is that right? While listening to Vicky speak, um, think of two examples that really, I think, illustrate uh, what we've been discussing quite well. When we're talking about preparing our trainees um, to have perhaps a dispassionate response to a very emotional um, stimulus, I think of a scenario that I have where um, it's an obstetrical scenario with an, with an obstetrician and an anesthesiologist and um, the baby needs to be delivered urgently, but mom's airway is um, difficult to manage for the anesthesiologist. And the entire objective of the scenario for me is to, to force that very difficult moment where the obstetrician realizes that mom comes first and that they can't keep pressuring the anesthesiologist to put her to sleep quickly because if the anesthesiologist puts her to sleep quickly, we're going to have un two unstable patients. And that's an example of a situation where I want them to feel that and feel what it feels like in simulation so that when it happens to them in real life, they've been prepared for that situation. And I think that I do a reasonable job during that debriefing of talking about the things that we've talked about in terms of addressing the emotions and how did it feel and and talking about their body language. Most of the of the residents in that situation are 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 often tapping their foot on the floor or looking at the clock and and very few of them, you know, feel very resigned in that situation. There you can see from their from their body language, they're very stressed and, and they try to peek over the drapes and, and encourage the anesthesiologist as much as they can, realizing they get the point. So I think I do a good job in that debriefing uh, over the years of, of addressing emotions. But that is in, in stark contrast to another story that I want to tell, because I think it's more interesting to talk about our, our failures than to talk about our successes. It's more compelling podcasting <laughs> so the first the i i uh, when i when i read this when i when i uh, reflect on this paper i think about a scenario that i designed very early in my career the objective of which was for the obstetrician to realize that consent is crucial and that even if their values don't align with the patient's values, if you uh, coax somebody into doing a cesarean section that they don't want, then that's assault. And the situation was a patient who had just found out she was pregnant, even though she was quite advanced uh, gestational age, the fetus is in distress, uh, the baby needs to be delivered, and the uh, mom is vehemently uh, disagreeing. 
So where did uh, young Glenn go awry? I also introduced a language barrier into that scenario where um, the consent is being obtained through a translator just to ramp up the uh, stress a little bit and to, to make it really feel to the resident that, well, if she only understood me better, she would agree with me. And number two, I didn't recognize um, the back, you know, what baggage or what, what, what uh, personal situation each of my trainees were in. The one that I'm thinking of was post-call that day and come, came to the simulation, uh, had asked if she could potentially reschedule. And I, you know, we were very tight for schedule at the time. And I forced her into this very emotional, very stressful situation while she was post-call. And um, yada, 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 she ended up in tears and not um, managing the, the situation. She was completely overwhelmed by the idea that this patient was disagreeing with her. And for whatever she was bringing herself to this situation, um, there was no learning that day. <laughs> and as I reflected, and, and as Vicky and I discussed this, uh, this example um, in the past, we realized that my objectives, you know, if, if she's in a situation like that in the future, she's not retrieving any of that information. That, was, that day was a wash. <laughs> so I think that it's a good example of you know, ramping up the emotion too much. Um, and don't even get me started on how I probably didn't even address her emotions during the debriefing. Wow. Um, because I was not uh, as skilled as I am today at navigating <laughs> the difficult debrief. All right. So, well, well, you've given um, us plenty of food for thought there, Glenn. And thank you for sharing that because it's always so easy to tell stories when you've been successful. It's much harder to retrieve your own uh, significant emotional distress about what must have been actually quite a tough mm -hmm. day. Uh, well, Vicky, help us deconstruct this here, but to my just very brief superficial overview, it sounds like we've got scenario design issues here, uh, things relating to how much cognitive load are we putting in there. We've got uh, the learner's own state as they engage with this and something that probably was going to be deliberately quite triggering. All right, well, help us understand it here. Yeah, so I mean, the interesting thing is that there is going to be learning that occurred from that situation. And I, I suspect that that learner, you know, years or decades later still probably remembers that scenario, but it might not be what, what Glenn had intended for that that um, that learner to, to remember. And, and look, I don't want to say that we're never going to have, as sim educators, we should never have these types of emotional simulations, right? Like I, as, as somebody who, you know, can see a, myself as a patient in that situation, I want somebody to have experienced that before and been able to practice it and learn the skills and be able to know the right thing, right? That's the advantage of simulation is that we can create, you know, we can recreate situations that are difficult to recreate in, in the real world, but that we want them to be prepared for it. So the message I want to give is certainly not that we have to avoid all of those circumstances because that is one of the strengths of simulation. But I think what we need to do is if we're doing something like that, to spend the time thinking, okay, what are all the different things that I have in here that could bring in some emotionals, right? From, from the sim design, where is the source of the emotions going to come in from? What is the institutional culture um, in terms of do our learners feel comfortable being vulnerable or not? Is this not only is the scenario that I'm designing in the session, 
psychologically safe, but do I have an institution where our learners feel okay to, to be able to learn? Um, you know, is the level of challenge appropriate? So spending that time, I mean, I think we know that people who are experienced SIM educators do spend that time thinking about that, but it, it, it can lead to those emotions. And then if you're going to have something like that, that you know is going to bring some challenges and is going to bring in some emotions, then think carefully about whether or not you're going to layer on more emotions. Um, right. So in a case like that, I probably would have said, well, maybe maybe we don't add the language as a first pass. Right. Maybe we just present just that kind of situation or maybe we talk about it first and then next week we do a scenario. So you kind of give them a little bit of the skills that they can have for it. Unless what you really want to do is you want them to experience that and you want them to kind of have those overwhelming emotions and learn how to do it. But if you're going to do that, teach them that it's okay to have those emotions, teach them what are ways that they could recognize them and how they can regulate them in ways that are going to be able to, to help them in that situation, right? So the situation itself is not bad. It just, it led to an unexpected situation um, without knowing it. And so if you think about what the impact is going to be on learning, then yeah, that learner's attention probably wasn't on the scenario. Uh, when this started happening, if they got emotional and went in the debriefing and they started crying, they probably thought, okay, what is everybody thinking about me? Um, you know, how, how am I being perceived by individuals? I don't want to do simulation. Simulation is a place where I'm being, being exposed a little bit too much. So there would have been a lot of cognitive attention put to this. There would have been a lot of memories from it. Um, but it was probably directed at things that were surrounding what the case was. But there's also the possibility that that learner learned that consent is important and it's going to stay with them, right? So there's still the chance that this person's going to remember, but there's also a chance that they're going to remember some of the other things around there that maybe weren't the focus of what Glenn wanted to do as, as an educator. Mm. So this is very helpful. Thank you. And and Glenn, so that we can stay in this very tangible world as well for the SIM educators, Putting that experience now through the lens of having written this paper with Vicky, uh, what would you do now if you were doing that scenario again? And maybe you now do that scenario again in different ways. What Tell me, what bits of it do you think you could have changed and recognising that some you might not have been able to change? Yeah, we have scenarios where we now bring a psychologist to the debriefing Um especially if there's a bad patient outcome, a purposeful bad patient outcome, and we want people to um, re you know, see what that feels like. And, and I think we do a better job of explicitly putting into the objectives and explicitly putting into the debriefing that that's, we are, we're going to have not an incidental conversation about emotions, but specifically how, how you manage your emotions. If this happens to you on your shift, are you going to go home? How are you going to call for help with your colleagues? Do you, I like that Vicky talked about the institutional culture. Do we have a culture where you can call your colleague and say, listen, I just had a bad outcome. Can you take it over the rest of my shift in a non-judgmental way? So, uh, no, we have not done that exact scenario again. Uh, uh, over the years, but if I was to, to, to do that again, I think I would bring uh, bring a psychologist. And exactly what Vicky said, I think the language barrier. I'm not sure exactly what I was thinking. Again, rah rah rah. Early in my career, let's uh, you know, it's too easy mm. if uh, if it's just a conversation. Yeah, but sometimes when you're writing the scenario, you don't realize 
um, you think it's super easy and you want to add in some complexity to it and you don't realize um, that it was already hard enough without adding that level of, of uh, Yeah, steps. and I think lots of other things impact here. Cognitive load theory has plenty to say about this, don't they? But I think the other thing I'm hearing is yeah. naming things explicitly is going to be really helpful. And again, people who've written extensively on psychological safety would uh, find that fitted quite well with their thoughts as well. You know, also, can I ask you just one thing? Because I think this is a question many people get asked or talk about in faculty development. Your crying participant. Uh, here we have an overt display of emotion. Uh, that's not necessarily good or bad. It just is. But what do we do as an action? Or is that not even a very good question? I think I use normalization mm -hmm. a lot. I, I think I think you just said it. You know, it's not good or bad. It just is. I think we have to name it. Uh, I, I see that you're upset. I, and listen, I'm saying this as the ideal answer, but of course I've been guilty in the past of, you know, elephant in the room, um, saying to somebody who's upset, no, 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 that was great. It wasn't, wasn't, mm. wasn't his performance mm. amazing? Everybody, you know, let's, let's go around the room and talk about all the great things that he did. Um, so I've been guilty of that for sure. But the ideal is, you know, I, I see that you're upset. It's completely normal. This was uh, a very upsetting situation. And let's talk about that. And maybe owning your own part in it, if it has been upsetting. I've certainly tried to do that more than I used to instead of covering it over, which I agree, elephant in the room was part of my previous practice as well. We do have some, some research that suggests that when you draw attention to emotions and you label them and you normalize them, sometimes that in itself can diffuse them. Um, I would also add that the other thing you can do as well is, you know, as Glenn alluded to, right, I, I don't think we ever want to dismiss them or try to get somebody away from uh, their emotional state that there is. And I think if, if you have a, a group where people feel psychologically safe and, and they feel like they can be vulnerable, you can actually go in and explore it and say, well, let's talk about that. And, and so you interpreted this, okay, what could we do as a group? You know, has anybody else ever had this feeling where you're overwhelmed and what are some skills that we can do? And you could have in your back pocket, what you know are adaptive ways to regulate emotions to, to, you know, you, as, as sim educators, we have to be nimble. We might have our learning objectives, but we oftentimes get derailed, right? So in your back pocket, have some skills to be able to teach them adaptive um, emotional regulation, right? The other thing you can do is is you can also do something what we call is attention deployment. And say, okay, yeah, I know that you're really upset about that situation, but there were different elements that until this point, there was some really strong points. And this is where there seemed to, things seemed to change for you. Find out what their what their frame was, right? And, and identify that. You can use the techniques of debriefing to try to understand and help work with them to try to find out, okay, what is it that helped in that situation? And then how can they reframe that and use that as an opportunity to say, okay, whenever I'm in this situation, here are different skill sets that I can have. And then they feel like they have the resources and the skills to be able to deal with those situations. So they'll feel like they'll, they're able to deal with that better the next time. Hmm. Yeah, this is very important. And as I said, aligns with some of the other advice we've had, but I think comes at it from a slightly different theoretical lens. So I think it's it's very useful. Uh, before we start to wrap up, I've got a particular interest in so-called stress exposure simulation. And uh, there's been a lot of, particularly our critical care colleagues, love the idea of throw them in and make them feel really bad and overwhelmed. 
and and yet I think there's obviously some nuance to this. Uh, did you want to speak to those kinds of exercises where the whole point is to make people feel overwhelmed? Yeah, well, I mean, do I ever, right? This is, I, I got into this topic because I was fascinated um, by stress. I was, I was working with some flight paramedics um, here in Ontario and I, you know, I'd done things with them that I was in awe of, of how they work in an uncontrolled environment. Then we brought them in the simulator um, and it was like the wheels were falling off and, and they couldn't do the work that I'd seen them do. And I became fascinated by this thing called stress. And, and so my whole career has been about trying to help frontline workers who have to deal in sort of high acuity situations to be able to do the work that they want to do. Um, and so it's it's near and dear to my heart as, as well. And I think the thing that we have to recognize is that mere exposure won't get you where you want to go. Um, because a lot of us, when we're left to our own devices, and particularly we work in environments that kind of give the message either implicitly or explicitly that emotions is, you know, letting our emotions get away from us means we're not professional, right? So we get a lot of messages to be able to hide them and suppress them. So when we're left to our own devices, a lot of us will actually try to avoid them or suppress them. And we know that there's long-term physical or psychological harm to that. But we want to do that. And simulation is where we should be exposing them to these emotions, but we should make it an explicit goal that we want to do. And let them know that this is what we're going to do. And the first thing to do is there's there's structured ways that we can do that exp- that stress exposure training. And the first is to normalize the emotions, right? De-taboo them. Um, then you teach adaptive regulation approaches, right? Some of it is physiological, right? Deep breathing, square breathing, um, taking a step back, counting to 10. There's different ways that physiologically you can kind of get the arousal down. And then there's cognitive skills that you can give to individuals, right? Sometimes it's acceptance. Sometimes it's actually reframing it. Um, and just sometimes very subtle reframing of a situation can be helpful. And then what you need to do though, is then you then need to give them practice at increasing levels of stress to apply those skills. And I think if we really honestly want to use simulation for that, we're not going to do it in three hours, right? We have all developed decades of how we deal with stress. You're not going to unlearn that and relearn that in three hours. Um, you know, to, to kind of use an example, right? If we take performing arts and we take the sports, right? You don't master tennis in three hours. And so we have to think about emotional regulation the same way as a skill is that we're not going to master it in one session. If we truly want to do that to prepare individuals for those situations, we teach them the skills and then give them repeated opportunity where they can focus on recognizing that and, and managing it and keep applying that so that they can unlearn what they did and then learn to be able to apply it so that it's almost second nature to be able to apply it at a later mm, point. Yeah, and those uh, skills are good. The other experience we've had when we've been doing a bit of work on this is uh, the team strategies to mitigate some of that emotional uh, or some of that stress rather. And uh, that still seems to be probably the number one thing that people do is they look out for each other and they find ways to support them. The other thing that uh, what you're saying there makes me think is how we need to maintain a close connection with what's happening in the sim, with what's happening then in the resuscitation room or in the operating theatre, Glenn. Uh, you know, you really do have to have 
a way of also deconstructing the emotions that our trainees or colleagues are feeling in the real world. And I feel like that's a massive gap for us, isn't it? We don't have these same conversations about the real cases. But wouldn't it be great also if in addition to that, when going to something you said about the teams, wouldn't it be great if we can be reach a situation where you have something that's happening, it's chaotic, and you can have a team member saying, okay, everyone, I'm a bit overwhelmed. I've lost track of what we're doing. Can we just regroup? And then it was okay for somebody to say, like, I am, it's too much. And then the rest of the team, rather than think, okay, well, maybe this person isn't cut out for that, would be like, okay, you know what? You're right. Let's do a touch base. Let's see what's happening. Okay, what do you need? Um, because that, your team is a resource. But wouldn't it be great if, if we had that kind of psychological safety and people were able to say, this is too much for me, like, or like, I'm, I'm kind of scared of what's happening mm -hmm. here. Um, and then the team could then be, okay, we can collectively help this person regulate emotions and make sure that as a team, we can still function. Because I bet you if one person's feeling it, everybody else is feeling it. And if everybody can sit there and say, yeah, this is pretty scary. Okay, let's regroup. Let's figure out how we can do this. That 30 seconds could lead to a very different outcome for the people that are trying to take care of a life and also for I agree. I think one of the things we can do with these sims is make stress and emotions discussable elements in a team. And I see that in the good teams. And one of the things that we found was that people were often surprised by how stressed or not other members of their team were. And by making it a little bit more explicitly articulated, that was, uh, as you say, good for everybody because people were keen to help those who were under the pump. All right, so interesting, but uh, we probably should start to wrap it up a little bit. So I'm keen to hear where we go from here. Uh, and this article is very strong on literature and thinking about how it applies in principles of good practice. I'm keen to get your thoughts on where educators take it from here. What else can they do to learn? And maybe for those who have some faculty development responsibilities, how should they be helping the SIM educators translate these messages into good practice uh, for their programs. So I'm sure you've both got comments on that. What I would like to see is part of our scenario development template to, to have an explicit conversation about emotions in terms of let's just, let's just stand back for a second and say, and think to ourselves, what emotions are we um, purposefully evoking? What emotions are we uh, might we be incidentally evoking? Uh, what is our goal if we are purposefully evoking emotions? Um, how can we mitigate things if, if we imagine, you know, the same way we imagine, oh, they might do this, they might do this, we better need, we better have those drugs in the room uh, in case they ask for it. We better have that, that chest tube in the room in case they ask for it. I think we still have, we also have to reflect on you know, how might people respond emotionally and how are we going to deal with that? So I'd like to see that more explicitly built into scenarios and, and, and um, in a more thoughtful way. My work is done. I, I've turned Glenn into a convert. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I think, you know, I think as a first step, what, what Glenn is saying is right on the nose, right, is, is I think as SIM educators, we have to develop a little bit more comfort with emotions um, and just recognize they are going to be there regardless of whether we want to or not. So we need to develop a comfort in terms of explicitly thinking about, okay, how are the things that I'm doing going to create emotions? 
And to expect that when we're going to be doing the debrief, I mean, we talk about the difficult debrief, but we don't have the explicit conversations. A lot of the time, the difficult debrief is because our, our learners are having strong emotions, which in turn triggers strong emotions in us as facilitators. And then how do you navigate that? So I think the first thing would be like, let's detaboo it, let's normalize it, let's think about it explicitly, and then let's think about how to approach it. Um, in terms of the next step, one of the things that Glenn and I have been talking about is like, okay, we've we've written this paper to give some tips and, and from that perspective. And you, you tell us whether you think there'll be a need for it, but we're thinking about writing a paper in terms of extrinsic emotional regulation strategies for for sim facilitators right how do you what are body signals how to get different ways to read the language to see if there are emotions how to tell when emotions might be adaptive or not and different strategies that you can that you can potentially apply even with perhaps tips for language um, of how that you use the different language is what we're thinking well could we take this and make it a little bit more of a specific guide to let kind of educators know, well, here are some ways you can frame things. Here are how things look like. So you tell us, Vic, do you think there'd be a, an appetite for that? Absolutely. And I think it, uh, it, may, it reminds me of Vince Grant's difficult debriefing toolkit. I think the toolkit idea yeah. is a really good one. And this would be uh, one that was specifically looking at those issues that we've been talking about. So I think it's a great idea. Maybe partnered with some simulations of simulations where we have some yeah. simulated learners uh, and now educators have to think about ways to that that's a really double or nothing yeah. strategy as well i think yeah <laughs> well glenn we've we've put it out there publicly so now we have to get writing yes and i think your intention was to ask vic to collaborate with us. <laughs> <laughs> well now we've got this public commitment we better do it hey well i can think of nothing nicer than with such uh well-informed people, as is obvious from this article that you've written. So, Vicky and Glenn, this has been great. And for our uh, Simulcast listeners, just to remind you, this is Emotions in Simulation-Based Education, Friends or Foes of Learning by Vicky LeBlanc and Glenn Posner, uh, just published 20th of January 2022 in uh, Advances in Simulation. And I will put some links. I mean, the reference list in this article is fantastic, and it does include that paper that Vicky was describing that she wrote way back in 2012 about the flight paramedics and the stress uh, which I think was very foundational to a lot of people's thinking about uh, uh, the the concepts in this area. So, look, thank you both so much for your time. And we are looking forward to more of all sorts. But in the meantime, just congratulations on your article and uh, happy listening and reading for Simulcast listeners. And thank you. And, and thank you for highlighting. Uh, you know, it's I think it's it's validating that this message is resonating with the community and that people want to learn more. I mean, I think it means that we're increasingly recognizing as a community that this is something that's important that we need to pay attention to. So thank you for giving us some airtime. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to Simulcast.